I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm excited to be here with Anton Matley. Uh, Anton has decades of experience in commercial investment banking, private equity, and commercial real estate. Um, quite quite a long and impressive bio here, Anton. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. I, I really appreciate you being here, and I, I think this will be a sort of very timely topic uh, given the state of markets right now. So um, if you would, would you please just start by you know, telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of what got you into the space and, and, and a bit of your career uh, journey, please. Sure, we'll be happy to. Uh, so uh, as you can hear from my accent, even though uh, I've been living in Dallas, Texas now for uh, more than 15 years, uh, that accent is not from East Texas nor West Texas. Yep. I was born in Switzerland, went to school in Switzerland, uh, graduated in finance, and then I joined uh, what is known today as UBS on the investment banking side, joined them in New York, worked there for five years. Uh, then I worked in Tokyo for four years, and then we sold uh, a business division to a large British uh, bank called Standard Chartered Bank uh, that is a, a major force in Asia. And as a result, then I moved to Hong Kong and I was running uh, uh, the team there uh, out of Hong Kong all over Asia. Um, so that was all great, except that my family never saw me during that time because I was constantly traveling uh, and in business meetings. And that's when, when I left uh, banking so that I can uh, control my life a little bit better. Uh, so uh, after uh, that, that banking uh, career, I moved into uh, 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 helping family offices and ultra high net worth individuals with their direct investments primarily commercial real estate, but also oil and gas and, and some other uh, uh, investments, direct investments or alternative investments, whatever you want to call it. And that was one of the, the drivers why we actually ended up with the whole family in Dallas because we had real estate projects in Texas uh, as well as oil and gas. And that's what uh, ultimately brought us here. Now with the, uh, uh, all these direct investments uh, that we uh, did in cooperation with, with these uh, family offices and ultra high net worth individuals, we also realized that the financing side was, uh, was very often a little bit problematic. No one was really providing what I felt the, the, the proper advice. And that's why we started our own debt brokerage business for commercial real estate, primarily initially just to help us and then help uh, our clients. 
So why did, why did you think that people weren't being, what was the sort of wrong advice that you were experiencing and, and what changes did you make to sort of address that? Um, like I've, uh, in investment banking, I've, I came from an institutional background, right? And as long as you're an institutional player, uh, you have the in-house resources on one hand, but you also have lenders that are more than happy to talk with you and sit down with you and come up with, with solutions for you. Uh, it's a very different world once you are uh, still a significant investor, but not an institutional level investor where lenders tend not to be that interested uh, because you do not provide the size of deals as well as the yearly volume of deals to, to make it as attractive as institutional investors do. And that, I would say, was the major challenge that uh, you just did not get the attention from all the lenders that would be attractive lenders when you were uh, just buying, let's say, two to four properties per year compared to an institutional that does many more deals and much larger deals. And uh, as a broker, uh, even though with these particular clients, they may still do only four deals per year or maybe half a dozen deals per year, when we combine all these deals and clients with others, now as a, as a broker relationship with these lenders, we become important enough that lenders are actually listening to us and are willing to go the extra mile, which then helps our clients too. And that's really the main driver behind it, why, why I think uh, we did it. And that's why our experience was, was much better once we kind of pulled the, 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 the transaction size and had much more of a voice with the various lenders. Uh, I mean, that makes total sense. And I guess you're, you were sort of uniquely positioned with your background to, first of all, just know that, uh, know, know the difference. I think most of us, you know, sort of not coming from a, a finance background, having worked with you know institutional uh, banking and all of that, wouldn't wouldn't have even realized that there was a difference. So th that's a very interesting uh, and unique perspective to have on that. So that's that's great that you were able. To, so so then your idea with, with peak financing is to essentially now make it so that other you know smaller investment companies are able to have that same level experience due, due to the you know sort of pooling of resources like you like you mentioned yes that's right uh right as, as long as deals go exactly as anticipated uh, i would say very often a borrower can go directly to a lender and they may still get uh, get a deal done uh, very often where the situation falls apart is when there are problems with a particular deal or with a sponsor that were not anticipated initially sure. and that is where i think our our experience and our relationships with these lenders really matter because these lenders want repeat business from us as a broker. And with that, naturally, our clients also get the benefit of that. So the lenders will still go the extra mile just to, to keep a deal going because they want to be sure that we are happy as a broker, which in turn makes our clients happy.
When you say they go the extra mile, can you give us some examples of what that would look like for, you know, that sort of, I guess, you know, special, uh, special sort of service that they would get with your company or with using you as a broker that versus one of the other brokerages? Yes, uh, sure. Uh, I mean, the, some of the, the key elements that pop up at, in virtually every commercial real estate deal are the property condition assessment, right, where you have engineers going out and they come up with all the so-called immediate repairs and the order repairs that they feel are, are needed, and uh, as well as the appraisers. That, uh, that come up with, with not just the appraised value, but also with an expense uh, pro forma. And if you do not really have a relationship with the lender, the lender just takes all of that at face value, then communicates it with the borrower. Look, that's the way it is. And then the borrower has to live with, with the higher immediate repairs that may have to be escrowed or a lower NOI because the expenses that the appraiser said are, are appropriate for that property are much higher, which then lowers the NOI. Uh, if you do, if you have a lender relationship where you just go in once or twice per year, the lender generally is not willing to, to go back and forth with the appraiser and with the property condition assessors to, to improve those numbers, right? Uh, with us, that's one of the the, uh, the, uh, the involvements that we are uh, doing virtually with every single deal to improve those numbers, which has a direct impact on um, less money that needs to be escrowed on one hand, but also improving the NOI, which in them improves the, the debt service coverage and potentially with that also the loan proceeds. Right. Uh, so the, that's just uh, one of many examples, but uh, that is something that comes up in virtually every single deal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we, recently, uh, at least my understanding, and please correct me if you're seeing something different, is that most most of the debt, especially in the multifamily space, is currently bridge debt. Like I've heard. 75, 80% of, of the deals are being done on bridge debt. Um, I guess first, do you, do you agree with that? Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I would say it's probably even higher uh, once you focus on the major markets. Uh, when you look at, uh, at the markets where most syndicators are uh, really active in, which obviously is Texas, it's Arizona, it's Florida, it's uh, Georgia to some extent, some of, some of the, the Midwest markets too, the Carolinas. I would say there over the last 12 months, it's probably in all the major MSAs, it's probably around 90% plus uh, rather than that 75. Yeah. Uh, once you include the smaller markets, then only because the, the prices are not as high, I would say you have a higher chance that, that someone is able to do it with a permanent loan, whether it's a Fannie or a Freddie loan. But it's only in the major markets, I would say it's around the 90% mark. Okay. Yeah. So even, I guess, even higher than I had uh, initially heard, which I guess isn't surprising with given that the price inflation and things like that, that has happened when you, so when you're talking about sort of these loans and, and, and the influence that you have on the actual lender as a broker and those relationships and all of that, I, I would guess that that really is in relation 
more on the bridge debt side than, for example, agency debt, because your agency debt is the government. You, you don't have a lot of impact there, I'm guessing, as far as what you can kind of push back on. Uh, actually, it's really the same. Okay. I, uh, so, so unlike on the residential side, where it's uh, as long as you are so-called conforming, uh, it fits into the box. And as long as a borrower fits the box, then it's, it's only a question of where the appraisal comes in and then you close the deal. Uh, when it comes to Fannie and Freddie, as well as HUD loans on the underwriting side, uh, it's really the lenders that do all the underwriting initially. And depending on the, on the deal, if it's a Freddie, it will be submitted to Freddie, but it's still an underwriting package that is being prepared by the lender underwriting uh, and until it's being submitted to Freddie. With Fannie, in most instances, it's, it's not submitted to Fannie at all. It's so-called delegated. Uh, you may have some waivers or or exceptions that are mm. that need to be requested, but the actual underwriting and closing is then done completely independent from from Fannie. And these loans then afterwards will be submitted to Fannie. Fannie reviews those deals, these loans post closing, and uh, naturally, if if they feel that a lender has not done the underwriting correctly over a pool of let's say hundred loans or whatever, then Fannie may come back and say, oh, "Look, guys, I think you need to tighten up your underwriting standard or whatever it is." So there are definitely some differences from one Fannie lender and Freddie lender to to others in the way they approach the underwriting, and so. It, there are actually pretty significant differences from, from lender to lender. On top of that, particularly also on the Fannie side, is because they retain a, a risk portion of the loans. It, not every Fannie lender will be equally aggressive when it comes to certain property types and certain markets. And so unless you actually know which lenders are particularly attracted to a certain market and property type, you may uh, uh, go to the wrong lender for a particular asset that you plan to buy or refinance, not realizing that there are any lenders that might be a much better choice. So that you even have that on the Fannie and Freddie side. Now, naturally, when it comes to bridge lenders, it is it is even broader because uh, it's really like the wild west so every lender uh, can have their own rules they don't have to uh, to respond to what fanny and freddie set up as as guidelines however in most instances it, they are not balance sheet lenders so they are still dependent on investors as well as the so-called CLO market, which is, stands for collateralized loan obligations. So there's still in 90% plus of all cases of these bridge loans to securitize those loans uh, afterwards, similar to what the Fannie or Freddie loan would, would, uh, would, would be handled too. And naturally these bridge lenders, when they originate a loan and underwrite a loan and ultimately close a loan, their goal is still to ensure that they actually can sell it to their investor base, right? Because most of them, they don't keep it on the balance sheet. So they always 
have to keep in mind to be as aggressive as they can to win the deal, the loan, but at the same time also having the ability to ultimately sell it to, to their investors. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's actually very interesting. And, and uh, I think a, probably a detailed look into how all this works that maybe most of us don't know uh, on the surface. Well, let's let's dive into maybe the topic of the hour, which is you know currently what's happening with interest rates in the debt market. I think that's a lot. There's a lot on people's mind. You see a lot in the media. Uh, I think there's a lot of fear uh, about what's going to happen. Are these interest rates going to go up forever? You know that kind of thing. So maybe just give us a high level take of what what you're seeing. You know what. And we could talk about where you think it's headed and stuff, but, but kind of what are you just experiencing right now on the deals that you're trying to uh, underwrite? Mm-hmm. Uh, the situations only f- from a borrower perspective has, uh, has deteriorated over the last uh, two months compared to uh, where we, we were just uh, earlier this year and definitely last year, right? Mm-hmm. So last year, uh, was probably the, the perfect time where, where, when someone wanted to acquire property with bridge loans as well as then refinance if someone was already in the position to refinance into, into a permanent loan because the interest rates were really still at, at really low levels both on the short end as well as on the, on the longer end. Uh, were they as slow on the long end as they were doing the uh, the bottom uh, of uh, where we were with, with COVID-19 in 2020? Obviously not, but it was still really attractive. So now what we have seen uh, over the last uh, a couple of months where we went up on the 10-year treasury from, uh, from 150, 160, 170 to now uh, 270 uh, a short while ago, and now we are already at uh, above 290. So that's uh, a significant increase. Uh, now, naturally, one uh, may argue, well, if I go with a bridge loan, I'm not really that worried about the 10-year treasury rate, because right now I'm only focused on, on the short-term borrowing, which is usually based on, uh, on, on, on one-month uh, index rates. And those rates have gone up roughly 30 basis points or 0.3% over the last uh, two months or so. So obviously, it's a significant increase there too, but I think it's still very much bearable uh, if you take out the bridge loan. So I don't think that the short-term borrowing cost has gone up that significantly that one would say, oh, I cannot buy a deal because the, my uh, going in borrowing cost is significantly higher. Now, there are two problems that, uh, however, are driving the, uh, that decision to buy a property and that one, a lot of buyers now got caught off guard. One is with the increase in the rates, both on the, uh, the longer end as well as the short end, is that the, the interest rate protection, right? For most of these deals, you need to buy an interest rate cap, as they're called. Uh, and the cost of those uh, has mushroomed over the last uh, few months very significantly. So what 
may have cost, uh, let's say, uh, $200,000 uh, last year, you will pay probably 800000 today. So the cost to buy these interest rate caps has gone up very significantly. So as a buyer, now you need to consider that in your underwriting that your interest rate protection cost has gone up very significantly. And obviously, that needs to be part of your underwriting. Now, another aspect that uh, uh, a lot of borrowers now are, are being caught off guard, and frankly speaking, even some lenders that were too aggressive in issuing quotes, is as you as you know, right, all these bridge loans, they have the intention all of them, these lenders have the intention that these loans can be refinanced into a permanent loan, primarily a fan you're afraid uh, within two and a half to three years. And the borrowing cost on these loans, obviously, uh, if you had to refinance today, has gone up massively. So a lot of these lenders have, bridge lenders have underwritten them at so-called debt deals that were in the in the mid six percent to the low seven percent just a month ago, uh, which is the equivalent of really a a, a, a fixed rate of around three point eight to four percent at best, and when we look at where the fixed rates are today. Even for a large loan, it, they are somewhere in the 4.6 to, to the 5% range, right? So what does that mean? These bridge lenders now need to increase their underwriting standards, uh, which means that the stabilized debt deal actually has to be moved up. And we already have seen that with some deals that they put under application with a much lower debt yield or stabilize debt service coverage, whatever it is, or a combination of the two. And they came back and said, sorry, guys, but now we need to increase that because uh, our underwriting uh, is not supporting to do it at, uh, let's say, 7% debt yield. And naturally, they also know that they probably would not be able to sell that loan to investors with that low of a debt yield. Yeah, makes sense. And the other thing that I have noticed that I I didn't hear you mention is that even just a couple months ago, you could get usually your CapEx rolled into that bridge debt at, you know, so if you have a 75% loan to value loan, and then you've got hundred percent of your CapEx rolled in there as well. I'm, I'm not seeing that right now where you can, you're get, you can still get maybe the 75% LTV, but you can't get the CapEx rolled in. Is that, is that just me or are you, are you still seeing that in some instances? Yeah, I would say it's more in some instances. Again, it's driven by these the the, the significant price increases mm -hmm. uh, that very often a, a deal just doesn't support to to go with maximum leverage. Uh, if 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 the the if there is a true value add proposition there, and the the lender as well as the appraiser really believe in a massive upside. Then I would say there is still a good chance that you could get up to 80% loan to cost. Mm -hmm. uh, there are very few deals out there, however, that are really like this. 
So it's only the case, uh, and I agree with, with, there with you, that most deals now are probably somewhere around 70 to 75% of total cost, which uh, is, is the purchase price and whatever rehab money uh, is, yeah. is budgeted. So there's only a, a reduction there in, in most instances on the, on the leverage side because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, what that means from, from an investor standpoint is that your returns are likely to be lower because before we could, we, we could leverage a much higher amount. And so less than less investors in the deal, essentially less capital to raise. Now you've got to, if you've got to put that, uh, your CapEx back in there, it just, it's going to decrease the, the returns. I mean, it's still, I still think real estate's the best and safest investment vehicle out there, but it, it is going to change the landscape of how that looks for, from an investor standpoint as well. Um, where do you see this going? What, what do you think happens kind of over the next six months, a year, whatever, you know, whatever forecasting your, uh, I, I know you don't have, <laughs> you don't, can't predict the future, but what, with someone with, with the experience that you have and, and, you know, kind of the, the unique position that you're in, where do you see this going uh, in the in the near and maybe long term future? Yeah, so I think in the near future there will be continuous pressure for interest rate increases. Um, I would say the Fed definitely will raise the the Fed rate multiple times this year. Uh, for how long we do not know. I think they are waiting until they see a cool down on the economy side as well as the investment market, I, particularly the stock market. Uh, uh, but as long as the inflation is, is running as it has been running, I would say we definitely see the, the pressure from the Fed side that they are truly raising the rates uh, uh, several times more. Uh, and I think because of that inflationary pressure, I also see that the the ten year treasury will will go above the three percent mark. Right uh, now, I'm not so sure. Once we go beyond the one year uh, from today, whether that uh, will still, even though inflation might still be a, a big issue, uh, that we still see the the Fed increasing the uh, the Fed rates as well as truly doing the quantitative tightening as they as they claim that you're going to do uh, because I, I feel that at some point the economy will contract because of the, the increases which then looking at the history how the how they have have behaved over essentially since 2008 that they will likely, be willing to to do the quanti- another round of quantitative easing, which means that there will be a reduction in rate, which means more liquidity going into the market. Uh, obviously, the result of that will be just kicking the can down the road again. <laughs> it's not really solving the problem, but I think uh, once everyone uh, has done it around the world, with the with these with the ease of quantitative easing, I think the it's a it's a very easy tool to to go back to as soon as you someone feels that they uh, that they have to do it to keep the economy going as well as the investment markets 
to keep them going? I'm not an economist, so forgive me if some of these questions aren't <laughs> up to your level, but I have heard people with the suggestions that perhaps like other countries, we could go to a negative interest rate environment. What's your take on that? What do you, do you think that's a possibility, a strong reality? What, what would that, what would that have to look like? And, and what do you think that means for, for us? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if we are moving into a negative uh, interest in, environment, I would say our economy has to be in, in really, really bad shape. Right. Uh, so uh, could that potentially happen? Uh, yes, but I would say uh, it's not something that we that we want to wish for because if if we uh, enter that phase, we we likely will be in a in a very severe recession and potentially depression, whatever you want to make the definition of what is when a recession turns into a depression. But uh, I would say that's really the only way that that one would potentially have as a, a, a reason why we would turn negative. Okay, so that that is more of a we, we wouldn't have negative, you, you don't suggest that we would have negative interest rates for a good reason. That wouldn't be something that would be, oh, we're just, that's part of quantitative easing. That's, that's really, we've gone into a recession and we're trying to sort of save the economy type of scenario. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Where do you see, so do you, are you investing in, in your own deals? Or are you mainly on the financing side? Yeah, we have been investing ourselves for for thirty years, right? So uh, I've been exposed on the investment side and financing side for through a lot of up and down cycles, uh, and uh, so obviously some of it was good, some of it was not not so good. Uh, but I definitely have uh, have been exposed into the commercial space for a long time. So, I mean, that's again, you know, sort of uniquely pers perspective to unique perspective to have it, having seen this kind of thing happen, uh, you know, through through more than just this one market cycle. What do you see this? How how do you see this all shaking out in asset prices? You know, we've had a lot of cap rate compression. Prices have gone. Uh, a lot of people say sort of out of control. The flip side to that is that rents are growing. You know, sort of out of out of control at a high rate. And so there's there's argument that the income side of things on these you know, commercial assets will push the, the prices higher because of that. But then uh, you know, the flip side is, okay, now interest rates are going up, the cost of debt is higher. So the prices have to come back down. What? How do you see that sort of playing out? Yes, uh, so un unfortunately, there is, is no perfect uh, scenario in, in my view, right? Uh, have we seen massive rent increases? Absolutely. Uh, how sustainable are those? Uh, there are still uh, a number of, uh, of research organizations, including CoStar and, and others that still predicting significant rent increases. Uh, I'm not so sure that that is, is really sustainable uh, uh, because you always need tenants that are able to afford it. Uh, 
yeah. right? And I would say affordability is a is a key element there. Now, the argument obviously is, well, people need to have a roof over their head, which which I completely understand. Uh, but I think we should also uh, not forget that in 2019, no one really talked about such a severe housing crisis. It somehow just uh, uh, everyone started talking about it in, in 2020. And I would argue that a, a big chunk of that so-called housing crisis is really more driven by a shift in 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 people moving from one location to another and not really an overall larger need of of housing right uh, so no, uh, i'm not an expert in uh, and i do not in attempt to predict where where we are going in in terms of housing supply and demand but when you listen to ivy selman who is probably one of the most uh, prominent uh, ones out there uh, 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 she she has definitely uh, a little bit of a different view than the majority of all the researchers have and when you listen to her I would say you you have to expect maybe not over the next year but certainly within the next two years a uh, significant cool down uh, and I would say in terms of uh, uh, in terms of rent growth, if not negative growth, and with that, I think you also should anticipate that the more supply that has been hitting the market that potentially also have a reduction in, in asset prices there, right? Now, uh, my view always is when it comes to uh, uh, to asset prices, Right. A lot of people say, well, uh, yes, interest rates go up, so cap rates uh, should also go up. Uh, at the end of the day, yes, that is definitely uh, the case. You always need to have a spread where the cap rate should be obviously above uh, your borrowing cost. Uh, but I would say uh, a lot of it is is not necessarily driven by where the interest rates are, but more where the asset allocations are by the market participants, right? So what, what do I mean with that is that uh, cap rates can, can move in a, in a very strange fashion uh, and sometimes move in the opposite direction just because there is a, is a market demand for a particular asset class. So in other words, interest rates may move up and cap rates still may come down just because there is such a massive move into a particular asset class. And that is definitely uh, what has happened on the multifamily side. Right now, my fear is, and I think that's what what we are going to see at some point. There is uh, everyone, including institutional investors and private investors, have have such a large exposure to multifamily that there is no longer that pent up demand to invest in more money into multifamily. So it could well be that there is a reallocation of assets. Uh, from multifamily into another commercial real estate that's asset class or potentially in some other asset classes, right? Uh, and I think at that point, it could well be 
that uh, cap rates actually will move up even if interest rates uh, stay flat, strictly driven by, by investor demand in, in multifamily and or in other, in other asset classes. Now, that is uh, my view on the, on the actual uh, uh, investor demand side. When it comes to, to the actual borrowing cost, I think we are now at the point where, because everyone is still primarily borrowing on the short, uh, with short-term borrowing and floating rate loans, that people are willing to to pay a premium as they move into refinancing these deals. Everyone now is going to re- recognize that these borrowing costs are now at the level that are. Uh, at four and a half to five percent, where clearly a, a cap rate at let's say three and a half to four percent is not really sustainable, right? So, with that, uh, I would say, uh, regardless of where the investor demand is, at some point, the investors who are still interested in investing in a particular asset class. It's not sustainable for for the long run that the cap rates are below the actually borrowing fixed rate borrowing cost, and that is what currently is the case. And I think that the market is going to to correct itself there. What does that mean in my view? Uh, asset prices will have to correct. By how much I do not know, uh, but I think unless then wise can be pushed. Uh, uh, significantly higher, there has to be a correction in asset prices. Sure, sure. I mean, that's all, it makes total sense. And I think uh, I really appreciate you sharing your kind of insight on that, because I think that's, maybe that's the question that, you know, everybody's worried about, about interest rates, but but probably more in the context of what is that going to do to to what we're either buying or selling our assets at. And that's that's ultimately, you know, kind of where, where the uh, returns and and what you can you know, sort of generate from these places is gonna is gonna come into play. Um, well, that was I mean that was great. Uh, I appreciate all of that insight, Anton. Let let me switch gears here to the portion of the show where I where I ask each guest uh, the same set of four questions. Um, the first one is related to the name of the show being Know Your Why. Uh, what what uh, what is your why, Anton? What what drives you you know towards success uh, in your life? Uh, it's it's really t- two pieces. One is is the family, right? Uh, so I would say family is probably my primary driver. Uh, uh, as long as the family is happy, I am happy. Uh, and uh, the t- the other why is that uh, I enjoy uh what what i am doing and as long as i enjoy what i'm doing then my surroundings will will enjoy what i'm i'm doing with them or for them right so whether it's real estate investing whether it's providing financing advice uh it's not that i do this because i have to but because i enjoy it right and uh, I would say that is is really my my primary why outside of the family. Yeah, that's great. Um, tell us something about yourself that maybe isn't common knowledge. We, we know you've lived in a lot of really interesting places, but uh, little little piece of piece of you to, for everybody to get to know you better. Uh, 
Well, I do not know how many people know that, but I was uh, big into windsurfing, right? So everyone knows that I was uh, that I'm a skier, right? But uh, <laughs> uh, I will, it's required based on where you're where you're from. Swiss, you are almost required to be yeah. a skier. That's right. <laughs> but uh, windsurfing uh, uh, is probably more of a an unknown there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's awesome. Um, when people hear this and if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, the easiest really is uh, uh, by uh, reach me by email. My email is anton, A-N-T-O-N, at peakfinancing.com. Uh, but uh, I'm also active on Facebook. I'm active on LinkedIn. So if you search my name, you will, you will find me there. And uh, uh, it's pretty easy to find me. Okay, great. Final question for you, Anton. What what piece of advice would you give to people? Uh, and maybe I'll maybe I'll change it up a little bit to normal. But usually, ask what, what piece of advice would you ask someone getting started in real estate? But maybe more uh, relevant to right now, what piece of advice would you give to investors out there in today's you know, certain, certain uh, current market state? Yes, uh, I would say be patient. Uh, don't rush to get into a deal. Uh, so that is, is really the, the key and, uh, patience also means that particularly if you're young, uh, be patient and be consistent. Uh, there is nothing better to be young, uh, in, if you just start out today, right? We've, uh, have, uh, young adults as, as children, uh, they can go through through a massive amount of turmoil uh, over the next few decades, but as long as they are patient and consistent with their investments, they will be very successful with them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I love that. That's perfect. Perfect way to to end this. Um, thank you so much. Uh, really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing all your knowledge. I think this has been. Um, amazing for me personally, just to hear your perspective, but I think people are going to get a lot of value out of this episode and, and uh, really uh, have some important take-home messages. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, we will sign off. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. 